G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you may miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Colette Pillsworth, who is doing a PhD in Geological Sciences under the supervision of Dr. Daniel Layton Matthews and Dr. Matthew Laybourne. Welcome to Grad Chat, Colette. Hi, Colette. Um, well, first of all, this is very weird for me because I've never actually met someone with the same name as myself. Even though you spell it a little bit differently, you spell it the way my grandmother used to spell my name all the time. So really, really weird. I don't know what it's like for you, you know, Colette talking to Colette. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because everybody spells my name how they spell yours. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they always miss out the L, so yeah, if I had the opposite problem. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you on board and, and, and thank you very much for doing this. Now, it was interesting. I was looking at some of the information that you gave me. So can you give us a bit of a background of where you're from? I noticed you did your bachelor's at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Uh, you didn't mention where you did your master's and now you're here at Queen's doing your PhD. So have you got a, can you give us a bit of a background? Um, yeah, sure. So I actually grew up in Bradford, which is in Yorkshire in England. Um, and then I moved to Scotland to do my undergraduate degree at St Andrews. I was really fortunate in my third year, I got to go to Western University in London, Ontario as a study abroad year and I studied geology there. And then I went back to St Andrews to, you know, finish my undergraduate degree in my fourth year. And then I really loved the Canadian system so much that I applied to a few master's programs out here and I was really lucky and I got accepted at Queen's and I was two years into my master's program and I decided to upgrade to my PhD. Ah, so, you did one of those mini masters going into the PhD. Yes, so I've been here ever since. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. so glutton for punishment, but it's great that we've got you. So would you have liked to gone to somewhere else or was it the the research that you're able to do here at Queen's that made you decide on Queen's? Um, when I arrived I was really lucky um, to be able to work in the Queen's facility of isotope research so that is in the geology building and I was really fascinated with all the research that was going on in there whereas a lot of equipment you know a lot of hands-on experience that students really don't get the opportunity normally to do so I kind of got right in there in my first year I learned a lot of useful tools that I could use for my own research and realized like if I wanted to do my PhD this was definitely the place I wanted to do it at because I really like the aspect of being really hands-on um rather than you know just sending your samples to a lab for somebody else to do it for you so that was definitely a key factor doing me staying at Queen's. That's great and what do your mum and dad think about you coming all the way over here across the um, pond as they say? My parents obviously miss me, um, especially with the COVID thing. I haven't seen them in like two and a half years, but they're super proud of me as well. You know, they know that I'm living my best life out in Canada. So we, and we like to visit, you know, occasionally when we can, of course. So, yes. Um, yeah. My brother also lives in New Zealand, so they're kind of used to all of my family living in different parts of the world. Well, that, that sounds familiar. Yeah. I've got 
my brother also lives in New Zealand, so there we go. <laughs> I know it. It's crazy. It is crazy. Small world, as they say. It's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, yeah. So that that's great, and um, I'm glad. Like I said, I'm glad you're able to sort of stay here at Queens and do this even under pandemic conditions. <laughs> Although we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're hopefully we're almost out of it anyway. Fingers so that, crossed. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> So, so let's get on to your research because, I mean, that's what we're all here about. We want to hear about what you're doing. Like I said, we are in geological sciences, so not the engineering, the sciences side of things. And your topic is advancing tools and techniques for the exploration of undercover ore deposits, a geochemical and mineralogical study of drill core fracture coatings from the Oberon Gold Deposit in Northern Territory, Australia. So hopefully everyone um, heard all of that. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It is a bit of a mouthful, but you're going to explain that to to us. So first of all, before as I say, before we go into some of the more itty gritty um, questions, can you give us a bit of an overview of what all that means? Um, yeah. So I think the way to put it, metals are always needed for society and. We're finding that a lot of the ore deposits at surface have been found, and we call those the easy ones that have been found. And we know where they are, and we've um, basically taken them out of the ground already. But the issue is now deposits are getting deeper and harder to find. Right. We need new tools and techniques to be able to find these at depths previously underexplored. And I'm basically looking at fracture coatings within drill core to basically see if they could um, provide useful information on the mechanisms on transport of um, and the development of geochemical anomalies through cover. So that sounds a little complicated, but what I'm trying to do is how, you know, how can we use geochemistry basically to um, find our deposits that reside at depth? Well, that was much better than the two paragraphs that I read. That was <laughs> summed it up nicely. So thank you for that. I know sometimes when, uh, when I read some of these synopsis from uh, our students, I'm like, Okay, I may have to ask a few more questions there, but that was nicely done. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, I think, you know, communicating science is really important. So I actually gave it to a few people that were not in science to read and they were like, we don't understand that. You've got to change that. So I think that's a really good process of going through because you get in your own head about your research, but sharing it with people outside of your bubble, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. And you've obviously got some good mates there that can help you <laughs> and get that yeah. change tactic there. But and, and I think it's funny, too, because some people think when you have to change it for the different audience that you're dumbing down your research, but you're not really, as we say, you're making it more accessible to those of us who could be extremely interested in what you're doing. So it's, it's great that you were able to do that for us. Thank you. So... With that being said, we've got some great questions here for you. And so okay. I hope you're I hope you're ready. And the first one, so we're looking so we're looking at ore deposits, right? Yeah. And as you said, ore deposits currently it's easy to take the stuff off the top or a few hundred feet down, whatever it is, but those deposits are getting less and less. And so you've got to find new ways. So how are ore deposits geochemically different from surrounding material? to start with and do you have an example yeah so I think the best way to describe this is that you know everywhere has a background geochemical baseline like most of the time the concentration of elements are very low it is really important we know this baseline is otherwise 
we don't really know what an anomaly is. Um, so you could go out into your back garden, you could look at the soil and you could measure the concentration of elements in it and it would be pretty low. So, but you know, in, ed- in areas where our deposits do form, let's take a gold deposit, for instance, that has formed from, you know, maybe an aqueous high temperature um, fluid. That fluid is carrying gold and other elements have similar chemical properties, you know, such as antimony, arsenic, bismuth, and a few others. Um, we actually call those elements that are associated with gold pathfinder elements. And these pathfinder elements vary depending on the deposit type or style that we're after. But what's interesting is that fluid is carrying elements that are significantly higher than the background geochemical baseline. These fluids um, eventually, you know, um, precipitate minerals that hopefully accumulate in a high enough quantity that can be mined and make up an ore deposit. So instead of having concentrations of gold that are really low now, you actually have concentrations of gold within the environment that are significantly higher. Right. So you can kind of target that um, deviation in element concentration from the background values as indicating that some sort of process has occurred within the environment that could potentially indicate an ore deposit has formed. But you talked about fluids. So you're talking about water going through some of the ground? Yep. And and finding new tracks. I mean, as we know, water can get into little cracks and then suddenly cracks become bigger and the water flows through forward. So I'm assuming what you're saying then that sometimes with these water cracks or channels that it's picking up different elements along the way and helping you find where the bigger deposits are? Yes. So this is over two types. So what I just described is a primary anomaly that occurs. So it's associated with the originally mineralized system. And then what happens is you get secondary dispersion of elements that occur afterwards. So I'm interested in those fluids that come secondary after the ore deposit has formed. It may have come into contact with an ore deposit and it's picking up the elements within that fluid and transporting them out into the surrounding environment. Oh, and okay. okay. Fractures are like, we call them like open permal pathways in which fluid can be transported through. And they leave behind a residual of um, like a mineral, which we can examine, um, which we call a fracture coating. And it's that fracture coating that I'm interested in, in analyzing to see if it can tell us if a fluid has, you know, maybe come into contact with an ore deposit nearby or is it barren and barren we associate with, you know, there's nothing there. Nothing and we, there. It's, it's not really that useful. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so that makes it interesting then because it's all about these fractures and then what's going through and what it's picking up along the way, which makes sense. And then I guess, would you have to follow the trajectory of where that fluid's come from? Because if it's, so say it's in point, you're picking up the fluid in point A and, and checking that, if I'm getting this correct, or those around that area, then where did it come from to get to that point to show? Yeah, I think in an ideal situation, we would love to do that. But the ore deposits that we're dealing with are billions of years old in some cases. So it's not just one fluid we're talking about. We're talking about multiple mechanisms and processes that could have occurred over those billion years. So it's quite complicated, as you can imagine. You're trying to track something and see if it indicates something's there. But it's quite difficult to do that because you're not quite sure what has happened over those billion years. Right. So that's the only problem with these fracture coatings. Yes, they could be indicating fluid movement 
near an ore deposit, but they could also be indicating fluids from above because, you know, water also comes down into rocks right. and stuff like that. So, yeah, hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. Yes. And so you drilling down into the earth and pulling out these big core deposit cores, cores of rock or whatever it is, or samples, and then looking in that. Is that what you're doing or what's the coating part? Yeah, so most mining companies end up drilling. They do their first initial like survey of all the information that they have. And then they decide, you know, X looks better than Y. So they'll go, we'll go drill there basically. And then they end up drilling and they end up pulling up a core, um, which is just a representation of a rock that exists at depth. And then within the drill core, we notice that um, you get a, a split in the rock and you get this coating. Let's just say it's like a red coating and the background rock looks a bit gray. It's very distinct. Um, from the rest of it so it, it indicates that something else has happened here that is not in situ like in place um, like natural to that system when it formed so something else has come through that um, rock later on and precipitated that mineral um, within the, 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 in the fracture and then we're looking at those coatings which could be a multiple uh, colors like maybe they're brown they're purple they're red or orange right. And we're trying to see if they're really useful for understanding the mechanisms or, you know, like, can we look at these fracture coatings? And if we're drilling, for instance, if a fracture coating is this color red and it has this mineralogy, can that be close to the ore deposit or is that further away? Further away. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then, of course, the colors. Would the colors signify a certain element such as iron or in this, what you're looking at is gold? Um, yeah, so this is really interesting. So there was a previous study looking at fracture coatings on uranium mineralization um, in the Athabasca Basin by um, another uh, student at Queen's um, in 2017. And she documented a bunch of different um, fracture colors around a uranium deposit. And she found that, yeah, certain types of colors indicated a certain type of mineralogy. And they could actually, certain colors were better to be used as vectors, like um we call vectors such as, you know, like, are they, are they useful or not to tell us where, exp uh, where the mineral deposit is um, for exploration? So I've taken that approach and I've now gone to this site in Australia and I'm documenting all the different colors around there. And I am finding that, you know, a red one tends to indicate more iron oxides, right. that sort of thing, if that makes sense. It does, because as soon as you mentioned red, that my first thing was something to do with iron. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And if you've been to the outback of Australia, yes. there's a lot of iron. <laughs> Correct. There is indeed. But even in Australia too, you know, the ball water under, you know, the ball, the plane, the water plane underneath everything. We used to, in West Australia, used to use the ball water to water the gardens, but then you'd have this red orangey tinge on everything because of the minerals that I'm assuming was in that water that came up from underground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Yes, well, we're not allowed to do it anymore because the water basin underneath there is getting um, smaller and smaller. It used to be quite big apparently, but uh, with everything else that's going on in Australia, it's all drying up too. So you talk about developing and applying in situ methods to fracture coatings, and, uh, and I think you, you said in situ means in place. So... Can you provide more detail on the type of in-situ methods you are developing and applying and do alternative methods exist? And if so, why is it important to do in-situ um, to, compare, to compare these alternative methods? 
Yeah, so I'm actually going to answer this question a little bit backwards. Um, sure. I just want to talk about those. <laughs> I know, I think it's important to say, like, why we started using in-situ methods or why we're trying to develop them. So there is other methods you can use. So as I was talking about that previous study, um, we used um, some sort of leach um, to be able to take the element concentration off of fracture coating and to tell us the concentration of like um, uranium or lead in that system. So when I talk about a leach, I basically mean a, you uh, take it like a drill, you scrape the coating off that rock, um, which could be red or purple or brown. You put it in a vial, you mix it with some acid and depending on the strength of the acid, you know, it targets different minerals within right. the sample. So if you take a, a 2% a nitric, leach we call that a weak acid leach it only really targets the mobile ions within the sample so potentially something that's come a lot later and compared to maybe what we call an acaregia which is a hydrochloric and nitric acid which is a lot stronger so it'll dissolve right. a lot more of the components within the sample and then basically you know get your element concentrations from these type of leaches and you can see um, if these fracture coatings do basically contain um, elevated concentrations of these pathfinder elements that we're interested in vectoring so like, towards exploration. So it's like a litmus test. It's where, like, for instance, with the, uh, a pool, you can, a uh, chlorine pool, you can tell whether the, the concentrations of chlorine is good enough to be able to make it safe. Or other times, it's a similar thing with, even with the, you know, the COVID rapid antigen test. Yeah, yeah. It looks to see if something changes colour, depending on what colour it changes will determine yes or no you've got this or that so yeah yeah it's, so it's kind of similar to that insect we get um an edXL file with a bunch of numbers being generated and then we have to plot them up on a diagram or something like that <laughs> see if it makes sense um so yeah so there is other methods that exist um so that was called that was called leaching doing the leaching method right yeah yeah yes. so what we were finding is the site in the uranium near the uranium deposit the coatings that i'm talking about you know the different colors they were really abundant like you could scrape them off and it was pretty easy to do that but when i went out to the site in australia the coatings were significantly um thinner like they were pretty much like you know a stain on the rock right. so there's two issues of that the first issue is if i scrape the sample off using a dental drill I actually could have some sort of chemical signature that comes from the host rock. And right. I'm not actually getting a chemical not, signature. Not the coating, right, yes. Of the coating, which is an issue because I'm only really interested in fluid that is leaving the deposit on the fracture coating. So, and I needed a way of being able to avoid that because in the Athabasca Basin where the uranium deposit was done, there is a control on the mineralogy and ke uh, chemistry of the host rock um, because it's all hosted in sandstones. So quartz, right. clays, it's pretty easy to tell if you're getting an increase in the signal because of that. But right. the site in, uh, where I am in Australia, there is a lot of different rock types. It's a meta, you know, sediment, igneous hosted gold deposit formed in an anticline so basically just a you can imagine an ups, up to, down u shape um, that's how i think yes. this is probably the best way to describe an anticline so there's a lot of different other rock types so if i scrape for rocks next to the fracture coating i could potentially end up just adding a signal that 
isn't representative of a fracture coding. So yeah. it's redundant and it's it's putting your results out of whack. It's yeah, it a, it's like changing it's kind of my like false positive type thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like maybe the gold is hosted in one unit and I'm scraping that fracture coding off and I'm like, oh, that's really useful that red is. But in reality, it could just be the host rock. Right. So my supervisors are really good at um, a technique called laser ablation in duscally coupled plasma spectrometry, which well, we God, call that's from... a big word. <laughs> yeah, so um, we call it LAICPMS for short. And <laughs> simply all it does is I basically um, take my fracture coding, I cut it down to a size that's reasonable. I mount it on a, a slide and I basically can fit it in this chamber and I can target uh, specific areas with a laser. And uh-huh. that, that laser basically just, um, you know, takes particular matter off the surface and provides it into this mass spectrometer, which basically then provides me with a concentration. So with this way, we can actually tell how deep we're going into the host rock. So we're yep. actually just targeting the coding uh, on the top and not actually getting any of the underlying influences. So that was part of my research is understanding the limitations and being able to develop this technique in the first place. Well, that's great. And and is that why you wanted to go to the goldfields of Australia? <laughs> um, you, just yeah, wanted, well, you just wanted a good field trip. Oh, of course. Yeah, I was really fortunate. I got to go out to Australia. Uh, It was an amazing experience. But also, um, I guess the reason we went to Australia is I was, we partnered with a mining company called Newmont. And they're really into, you know, encouraging development and research. And I was really fortunate. And they had this site in Australia, which has an anomaly at surface, which is quite rare in um, Australia um, anomalies at surface are great because you know you don't have, you can actually see that there's some sort of um you know you you believe there's some sort of deposit at depth um right. but with the anomaly being at surface they were interested in looking at how you know these fractures we know that there's some sort of mechanism that is taking elements from the rock at the bottom to the top of the surface and we were interested in looking at these fractures to understand, you know, the mechanisms of transport and the development of these anomalies through cover. Because the idea is if you can prove it, you know, you, you have this case model where you know it's working and those um, processes are occurring, you can start using it to understand how um, you can take certain components out, like what happens if I don't have an anomaly at surface? Right. Like, can I use these fractures elsewhere to explore for deposits within the region? So question for me, because I love the environment and I know there's a lot of mining, for instance, that goes on in Australia for, yeah. for natural minerals and things. If you find out that, you know, with with the modelling and things that you're doing, that this fracture coating and, and things that you're working works, then what happens? Do the mining companies then go, we, we found out where it is, there's a possibility here, and then and then they're just going even deeper and deeper into the ground? Because I'd like to think at some stage we stop digging down too deep. <laughs> so. No, that's a totally fair question. Um, I think it's more the fact, you know, there's still a lot of Australia being explored. It's more like they continue to drill, and every exploration program they will drill, and I feel like fracture coatings, they discard in most of their sampling programs because we don't realize the value of them 
So right. instead of going deeper, I feel like it's more of a, they can go lateral across because there's okay. still so much area to explore. Right. And, you know, like they're going to continue drilling. And I feel like being able to use and know the value of the fracture coatings could provide a little bit more of information about, you know, the environment or like potential proximity to all deposits that it would be really useful rather um, than willy-nilly going wherever and thinking oh let's go down here and hopefully we can get a big deposit and go oh no that didn't work let's go to the next spot so this way mm-hmm. you've got a better chance of yeah and it's not just this for instance like I've worked on other projects you know where it's really pulling all the data sets together and being able to say like with the best accuracy like this is where we should be drilling um but also when we are drilling like actually using the most out of the drill car that we can actually take away from it. So right. most mining companies when they drill, they they do half they half the car and send it away for um, geochemical analysis, like assays. They get the gold value, they get the sulfur or arsenic in a gold system. Then the rest of it is it, it's logged. They say what type of rock type it is down the car. But then it's like, oh, what about fracture coatings? Could that also be useful? An additional piece of information right. that we could use. Right. So why gold and not any other deposit type? I mean, can you can you study fracture coatings at other deposit at other sorts of deposits? That is what I'm hoping for one day I will be able to do. That is like <laughs> for future research. So gold was mostly because like we got the perfect site, you know, right. for it. Uranium looks like it works there. We want to see if it works in a gold environment. But then yeah, like further research could be done on other different deposit types around the world. And just expanding the case studies and understanding where it works when it doesn't work you know what are the influences of the different geological environments that sort of thing and um, there's a whole bunch of factors and a whole ton of research that still could be done on this so yeah maybe one day I'll get to keep expanding my deposit types into these regions. <laughs> <laughs> so has this company that you've been working with New- Newman I think you said it was called um, yeah. are they seeing results from the the work that you're doing or are they happy with the results i mean there's one thing you know these big companies putting money behind research but they want results as well right <laughs> yeah i know that's totally fair um great question i have just spent the last three weeks in the lab trying to generate all my data so i've hardly looked at it yet so if you're asking a month's time I, i'd hope to say yes but we'll wait and see <laughs> i think sometimes we do want the results but even if getting a result that is like this is not useful is also really valuable for mining companies True. we don't want to pour millions into doing something without like actually feeling it out first so like yeah. actually i feel like a null hypothesis don't do this is basically also good so either way it goes i'm not quite sure right now i'm still looking at all the data got lots of different spreadsheets it's going to be uh I think it'll still be either way the outcome will be good yeah I hope you like crunching numbers <laughs> oh yeah you kind of get used to it you sign up for, for geology thinking you're going to look at rocks and most of the time you end up looking at uh, ed excel files <laughs> that's the geochemistry aspect of it <laughs> well it's fascinating what you're doing and I mean, the bit that I like is that maybe we won't be blasting so many holes in all sorts of areas where we can just, if we found a nice place, then it makes it easy, like you said, go out rather than down. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And also I, just not wasting information. I think that's really important. Yeah. That's true. Because I imagine there's a lot of information that's wasted along the way because no one knows how to analyze it. Um, yeah. So, and so I definitely think that void. 
And especially with the increase in technology, like mining companies are getting better at digitizing stuff and being able to pass files around much more easily, which is kind of nice. So that data is a lot more heavily documented than it ever used to be. So instead of having to redrill a hole, they actually have got everything already and they keep much better. Yeah, if that makes sense. That does make sense. So thank you. I appreciate that. So the other thing I also like to talk about is extracurriculars of our students and you're keeping it all in the same vein here. Look, you're a geochemist <laughs> for the Queen's University Botswana data set. What's all that? Or is that something that you, or oh, Next Generation Explorers Award? Yeah, PDAC is an international mining conference that happens every year in March. And they host a competition for students to get involved in. So you can choose a data set from around the world and we give you all the data set, all the software and an industry like advisor, basically to help you along your way and we it was really great we basically uh, got a team together at Queen's we all come from different aspects of geology we're not I'm just I'm a geochemist we, I got like people that do geophysics machine learning and we all kind of pulled our strengths together and we basically took this data set and the idea is you basically have to be like where would we drill you know and you come up with some targets but also we took the approach of yes we can come up with some targets but because we're in Botswana we wanted to take a very environmental focused approach as well we wanted to basically say no mining in these zones because even if they do look prospective it's basically a no-go area for the environmental aspects right that's fantastic it must be great to be able to sort of come up with these sort of trials and things and um, and get an award out of it at the same time well yeah we're um, currently competing in the top six and we'll find out how we do in june so we're still in the competition so it'll that's be really- great great to see how our team performs and I think it's just fascinating you know collaborating with people from different parts of I mean geology everybody thinks oh we all know the same thing but no we do not you know (laughs) I've learned so much from my team and um, you know we did it over uh, in COVID time all remotely so like it it was really it's been a really worthwhile experience so I'm super proud of the team for getting to the top six well that's yeah that's amazing top six brilliant yeah hopefully we can go higher higher, exactly but (laughs) If you don't, you are still done really well to get top six. And clearly you've learned lots from it. And what's this? You, oh, you're a geological consultant as well. Uh, yes. During the pandemic, uh, things were pretty slow. So I got offered a job at Cone's Analytics. And they basically uh, are catering, you know, advanced analytics to the mining industry. And the idea is, you know, taking information that already exists and make it into and transforming it into more usable forms and um, which can be used then in machine learning algorithms I guess the idea is taking all the information that we already have putting it into this algorithm and letting the computer decide where we should go and look for and explore for it's, it's, it's almost like with some of, a lot of this work you need to be a computer scientist as well when you're looking at all these algorithms and well yeah it's interesting when I started the consultancy job I very much was a geologist not a coder so they taught me how to use python which was fantastic I really think that's a skill that I need now um, it's getting more <laughs> and more needed and we basically were using me to train um, models because I had the geology knowledge, but I've also learned a lot along the way with them. And it's been really fascinating. Definitely taking, as I'm a trained geochemist, you know, being able to explore a different side of geology and not right. really knowing anything out about it, but also learning a lot at the same time. So I felt like during the COVID time, I wasn't really doing much else. And it was really nice to be able to expand well, on my knowledge. It looks, well, it looks like you've uh, picked up a lot of new skills along the way while you're doing your research. So that's awesome. 
yeah I know it's been really it's been really good but I've been able to do that um, and I've got really understanding supervisors that allow me to do that <laughs> <laughs> that that does help doesn't it that really does yeah. help well Colette it's been great chatting with you thank you so much for coming on the show I hope you enjoyed it and it wasn't too daunting for you no it was great really thanks for the chat it was it was nice to talk about my research great and uh, I, I wish you best both in the competition and also with the results when you get through mm-hmm. those results of all those data sets and things that you've been collecting and samples along the way so good luck with all of that no thank you for having me good so that's it everyone a another week of a grad chat sadly comes to an end and don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes google podcast spotify or stitcher just type in grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.